you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be the best chef, but now I'm probably wanting to be the best chef that I can be and just cook simple, big, delicious flavors. We're really looking to just do simple ingredients on the plate that are really good and not have to do much. I think that probably exemplifies my style as well. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Italian food has become so entrenched in Australia's culinary landscape that we see restaurants dedicating themselves to regions and even dishes of wonderful historical importance. Nick Bergen is the head chef of Makato in Campbelltown, South Australia. Nick, how are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. It's great to get you on the show. Uh, how are things uh, at Mercado at the moment? Yeah, very good, very good. Um, busy as always, um, but leading off into next year or like 2025, so we're opening a new shop, so busier than ever, but um, yeah, a lot of work to do. Well, I'll ask you more about that new shop a bit later on. Um, tell, tell us about Mercado. Uh, what's the offering there? So it's... Um, basically an Italian institution within South Australia. We um, turned 50 years old last year and, um, yeah, really, really big and well-known. So we've got about a 900-square-metre footprint, I believe it is. Um, yeah, so we are an Italian cafe, deli, bar um, with a huge retail offering as well. So you can come in and buy your small goods, cheeses. We do ready-made retail meals, but then you can come in, have a slice of pizza, a bowl of pasta, cannoli, tiramisu. Like, there's pretty much everything you want that is Italian. <laughs> that's that's extraordinary. What's it like for you? Like, how many people are you managing and what's your role like? So, I also manage the front of house as well or oversee the front of house. So, within the kitchen, I've got about 10 to 12 people on the roster and then the front of house side, we've got about another oh, 15 people, I believe, on the roster. So, it's a pretty big... Um, responsibility and role but at the same time it's high pace it's high volume it's nice and casual it's a place for everyone to come like you know you always see nonna and nonno come in bringing the grandchildren in um especially in the school holidays it's just a great atmosphere and place for everyone to come well what's the pressure like for you for something that's such an institution and such a big part of the um restaurant landscape of south australia is there pressures on you in that um there is, but I probably don't let it affect me too much. I just come in and enjoy cooking and, you know, seeing everyone happy. Um, when I first started, I had a lot to learn. And Imra Mario, who started the business 50 years ago, they're still around, you know, climbing up ladders, stacking shelves and all that kind of stuff. And if they don't like something you cook, they'll tell you. Um, but in a very, in a way where it's like, that's not how we do it, you know, like, um, you said, I've certainly changed the way we do food. I've been there six and a half years now and the style of food we're doing now is very different to what it was back then and we've pushed a lot further and then their son, John, who now owns the business, he's also pushed me to make those changes and evolve. Um, so there is pressures but I guess we also create new pressures within ourselves to evolve and change what we're doing. Tell us a bit about that evolution. Do you have some examples of you know, dishes now and sort of how things have changed? Yeah. So back then it was very, very traditional. Um, you know, we do the Roman pizza by the slice. Um, one thing that will always be on the menu is Imma's Cavatelli, which she makes about 30, 40 kilos a week. And we just serve that with a Napolitana sauce. So that will never leave. Um, but when I first started, we never had any like, you know, small plate antipasto type dishes. Um, and we've implemented that, but I liked, you know, that 
trench training and all that kind of stuff and eating a lot of Asian food, um, I've put a lot of changes in. So, you know, one of the dishes we had on for a while was like a Wagyu brazola, almost like a sanchoy bao in cos lettuce leaves with some aioli and then like some soy pickled enoki mushrooms. So we're using specific Italian ingredients that are very traditional to regions and things like that. But then at the same time, we're adding that extra salt and umami to help, you know, amplify that flavor. Um, so I try to do those little twists and changes and sometimes it's not for everyone, but we try to constantly push and evolve different flavors within Italian cuisine as well. That sounds amazing. I want to explore that a little bit further as, as we uh, get, get along in the episode, but take us back to when you were young. Whereabouts did you grow up and what sort of role did food play? Um, so I grew up in the Adelaide Hills in a um, little town called Nan. Um, and food for me growing up, we always, you know, would have roasts with my grandparents and, you know, that was probably the kind of staple, roasts and barbecues. But then, you know, um, the weeknight dinners, I, I refer to them as like the women's weekly cookbook. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, the staples of like apricot chicken, beef stroganoff, you know, it was a lot of packet mix. I grew up in a family of eight. So um, there was a lot of food to put on the table and it was, you know, pretty challenging. Um, but it was always, you know, especially those roasts from what I cook now, it was my family, like they love their meat well done. So for me as a chef, I'm like, no, let's not do that. Let's let's just leave the lamb a little bit pink or something like that. But I always remember if I walk in a kitchen now, I always smell that smell of roast lamb and I'm like, oh, that reminds you of your childhood, you know, that lamb fat sizzling and all that kind of stuff. So it was a pretty simple kind of food, but, you know, a very convenient style of food as well at the same time. When did you first start to get interested in food and consider it as a career? Um, I sort of fell into it. I was 14 at the time and I wanted money um, and I probably had some, you know, within the family we had some mental health issues. So I just walked down the street one day and asked um, our local restaurant for a job and they said, come back in a couple of hours. Um, and I started doing dishes and I absolutely hated it because the dishwasher wasn't working and I had to wash everything by hand. I actually went home, <laughs> pretty bad to admit it, but I actually went home sick that day because I was like, this isn't for me. Um, but as I, as I left, they paid me cash in hand. Um, and so I went back and I fell in love with it. Um, I just kept doing dishes. The chef would show me things. I started making some pizzas. And then slowly as it evolved, I got paid cash in hand and I got paid in beers as well. So as a 14-year-old, 14, 14 I was... Um, I was on top of the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, where did you sort of get your foot in the door in regards to, to cooking and sort of your apprenticeship? Um, so through school, I actually um, was talking to people, you know, getting into year 10 and 11 and going through, um, you know, career advice and things like that. And I, I really wanted to do it. So I actually started a school-based apprenticeship. Um, yeah, so in year 10, I started doing that. So I'd get a day off a week to go work at um, – a pub in Bridgewater, which, you know, we served curried snags, lamb's fry, schnitzels, all basic pub food. We were very cheap, but we, you know, we crumbed everything by hand. Um, you know, we'd do 200 covers with two chefs. It was just high volume, let's smash it out. Um, and I always knew that I enjoyed cooking and I didn't want to do that stuff long term. I wanted to push for that fine dining. At a young age, I was like, I need to you know, I'd be on websites reading restaurant guides and things like that. I really wanted to push. Um, but that's how I first got into that. And the, those formative years at the pub were phenomenal. They've made me be able to cook really fast and get high volumes of food out um, under a lot of pressure too. 
as you started to build your career and that yearning to sort of do finer dining, um, tell us about where you went and who the people were that was most influential on you. Yeah, so I um, ended up pushing to get into a restaurant um, which was next door to the Bridgewater pub called the Bridgewater Mill, um, run by a chef at the time, Leitu Tai, who I didn't know much about him. I certainly knew his restaurant was phenomenal and I sent my resume in because they were looking and I was very surprised I actually got a um, a phone call back. Um, so I went in for an interview and I think it was 19 at the time and as a young 19-year-old, he basically sat there and threw my resume in the bin and I was like, oh, okay. He goes, but none of that matters. Like, can you cook, you know? So um, from there, came in the kitchen um, for a couple of hours. Um, I essentially just stood there, put a couple of things on the plate and watched and from there, he said, "Yep, come back." And it was, it was, it, it was a big learning experience. I'd gone from making packet gravy and things like that to killing marin every day, um, all that kind of stuff. Turning vegetables. I was eating truffles and lobster for lunch. Like, <laughs> I was living the dream. And the restaurant at the time was owned by Lion Nathan, um, so we didn't actually have any food costs. We were attached to Petaluma Winery and Crozer, so um, it was more more a promotional thing and it was quite phenomenal like my world had just flipped upside down it was it was incredible and i was eating like a king <laughs> <laughs> do you have any stories of working with lee to tai and the influence on you yeah it, his kitchen was very different and i saw a lot of people come and go and so i spent three years working for him and a lot of people he never really taught you anything he would he would actually do a lot of his prep in like behind closed doors when you weren't there. Um, but what I really thrived on was I wanted to cook like that. I wanted to be at that level. So I used to go home. I would buy a million cookbooks. I would read. I'd look at website menus. Um, I would see what other people are doing. And then I would just go into work with him and I would just taste all his food like over and over again. Um I just wanted to be able to make, like, for me, his his true excellence was his sauces. Um, I just wanted to execute a sauce that he made because they were sweet, sticky, but well-balanced at the same time that complemented, you know, he was doing things like a foie gras nougat with a piece of beef filler and a Petaluma Shiraz sauce, like really simple stuff. But what he taught me was he taught me to think and he also taught me that, do a lot of little things right and you will make great food um, without saying that to me, I guess. Um, but he taught me more than I think he maybe thought because he would do his prep behind closed doors, but I was just hungry to learn and be like him. Your, your appetite uh, for learning sort of led you to delve into the world of pastry and sourdough and pizza and all sorts of things like that. Tell us about um, where you sort of learnt your craft with that. Yeah, so I first started watching YouTube videos and people making sourdough and I was like, I've got to learn this. <laughs> you know, it's like this was in, when was this? This is 2013, I think 2012, somewhere around there. And I'm like, oh, well before COVID and everyone started making it. Um, so I went off and did a TAFE course to learn how to bake and I was so dis disheartened by it um, because it was pre-mixed stuff. They were like, no, it's too hard to teach people. And I was like, all right, so... Um, as part of that, though, I had to do work experience within a bakery. So um, I popped down to these guys that were on the west side of the city here in Adelaide um, called Red Door Bakery, which 
at the time was just growing and, you know, just everyone was talking about it. And I did my work experience there for two weeks. And at the end of it, um, the owner, Gareth, just said, uh, do you want a job? We're opening another shop. We're building a production kitchen. Do you want a job? And I was like, done. I'll sign on <laughs> straight away. Um, and, you know, it is one of those things like as a baker, there's nothing better than that, you know, that croissant that's cooled down ever so slightly at 4 a.m. in the morning. It's just one of life's simple, simple pleasures. It's become a feature of your cooking since then to some degree. Tell us a bit about sort of where you then went on to sort of master the craft and where you worked. Yeah, so um, those guys at Red Door Bakery as well, they also opened up another place um, next door or two doors down called Croydon Social and um, that was just a pizza shop. All we had was one wood oven. I think we had about 20 or 30 seats. Um, so out of that same production kitchen, we did a bit of prep, um, made the pizza dough. We'd make gnocchi that we'd bake in the oven. Um, but we all opened this restaurant and started hand-stretching pizzas. Um, and at first, my pizzas were pretty pretty terrible. Um, but then over time, um, those pizzas came out were just phenomenal. Um, and it was a real art to learning to cook with fire. Um, all our desserts were cooked in there too. We'd do a date bread and butter pudding with brioche baked in the wood oven. Um, just once again, really simple things, but having to learn and adapt. It's the same as when you're baking the bread and all that, you know, that fermentation, knowing how the dough and the sourdough is reacting and all that kind of stuff. It was, um, I've learned a lot through, you know, working for Lay and then going to Red Door about cooking with intuition and all your senses and things like that. Um, it's really interesting um, when you start looking at it that way, but you can grow a lot as well. T- tell us a little bit more about, you know, c- cooking. You, you only had a wood oven. Everything, as you say, was in there. What were the sort of challenges and sort of um, – were there any sort of misadventures trying to get things right? Um, we definitely had some failures with our pizzas in the beginning, like trying to control the temperatures and that. We had um, – we probably baked our wood oven pizza at a bit lower temperature than that traditional Neapolitan um, and probably got a bit of a crispier base than you would generally get, so not hugely traditional. Um, but, you know, we would try things like putting the door on the wood oven and smoking beetroots in there and serving them with a sheep's milk yogurt and things like that. Just we, we tried to evolve and do our little snacks and small plates as best we could, um, you know, with that fire and smoke. So we tried to be as versatile as we could um, and just – to give anything a crack and there were certainly things that failed especially the pizzas in the beginning but um you know things would get too close to the fire and they'd burn and then you're trying to scramble to make another pizza and things like that it was quite interesting um i remember one of the craziest days we had we had a um big power outage here in south australia due to a storm um the whole state lost power for i think a good almost 18 hours um, and being a place with a wood oven, we were the only place in the area open and I think we sold out of our pizzas in about 10 minutes. <laughs> but we were, all, we were all cooking under iPhone lights and things like that um, and we, 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 we just couldn't keep up. It was quite um, an amazing night and probably one of our busiest nights ever but it was a lot of fun and those people who I work for, Emma and Gareth, they, um, they've become lifelong friends and things like that. They've taught me a lot and supported me a lot as well there's a real art and craft to baking you know whether it is pizza and pizza dough or whether it's bread and sourdough and and the like but you know what are some of the real important sort of steps and secrets you know from your perspective 
Oh, the biggest one is patience, I think. Yeah. Um, you've just got to be patient. Let fermentation do its thing. Um, monitor your temperature. And for me, there's no right or wrong way. Like you see everyone has these little nuances and differences in the way they make their dough. So I might watch someone on Instagram or on TV and think, oh, you know, I'm going to give that a go. Um, everyone's bread is different. and But then at the same time, everyone's bread or croissants are just a little bit different every day as well. And I think... I think that's the beauty. You're playing with a living organism. You have to adapt and be patient every single step of the way so that you can aim for consistency. And for me, I just want to be consistently better every day. So I think in all those little tips and those things that matter the most, I think it's patience. Um, one thing, when I bake these breads at home, sometimes I do, um, I don't have the patience at home. <laughs> Whereas... At work, I have things to keep me occupied, so I am patient. <laughs> How did the role with Mercado come about? Um, I was actually probably looking at getting out of cooking at the time. And, um, yeah, I, I was sort of like not had enough, but I was like, oh, I just don't know what to do now. I, um, I'd applied for a couple of jobs outside the industry and I absolutely hated them. Um, lasted like half a day and was like, this isn't for me. Um, and then one day I just walked in with my resume and said, are you looking for anyone? And they're like, oh, we need a, a pizza chef. So um, luckily the lady who was the barista at the time, she had known my old boss Gareth at Red Door Bakery and put a phone call into him and they were like, yep, he's good. And they'd spoken to the coffee roaster who, you know, this tight, tight-knit community here in Adelaide. They were all like, give him a shot. Um and so I started as the pizza chef there, but went from making round pizzas to big slabs of like, you know, 600 by 400 slabs of pizza that we sell by the slice. And um, yeah, I struggled. <laughs> there, there, there was a lot of failures, like you're taught to stretch a round base, but going to a rectangular base was, I just couldn't do it. And it's taken me a lot. It, it took me a long time to get it. Um, but from there, I just worked as the pizza chef. I started jumping in on other sections when people needed help. Um, and before long, I, I think it was uh, maybe a couple of, uh, probably about 18 months and I took on the role of head chef um, and have just progressed from there. It was one of those things I kind of, I guess I almost fell into the role there. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. I just want to take a step back for a sec. You mentioned about wanting to get out of cooking and out of the industry. T take us back to that period of time. What, what sort of led to that and um, what were you feeling at the time? Um, I think I sort of just was a bit over it. I just, and I don't know why I was over it. Um, I was, I'd currently been working, you know, five nights a week and things like that and had a wife and a daughter and, um, you know, wanted to spend a bit more time Um and I guess I'm probably – the reason why Mercado worked out so well is it's predominantly, you know, baking, breakfast and lunch. We do a couple of dinners, but we don't work many nights. So it probably gave me the flexibility to have a better work-life balance um, and I probably fell back in love with cooking again um, just because I got that free time. And now I enjoy cooking at home as well. So I get the best of both worlds. I get to cook for customers and then I get to cook for my family. Let's talk about your cooking. Um, do you have some dishes or examples of sort of dishes that uh, sort of exemplifies where you're at with your cooking? Yeah, I think um, I'm pretty my, – my, the food we cook at Mikado is very simple and I guess very homely. Um, you know, 
one of the things I love on the menu at the moment, uh, we do this Italian zeppoli, so the savoury one that they do with um, anchovies. And so we get a bit of our pizza dough, we deep fry it, and then we make a, um, a burnt tomato jam and top it with an olazagasti anchovy. So you've got all this beautiful, sweet, salty, there's a bit of balsamic in the tomato jam, but then you've got this crispy, fluffy pizza dough as well. So I try to take those twists and do that, but then one of our big staples is our pizza. Um, it's that big, thick, fluffy um, pizza dough that we we actually pre-bake it and then we top it with toppings again so it gets extra crunchy. But we actually do, um, like, I think nothing is better than the margarita, just good Samazana tomatoes, um, good fio de latte cheese, good olive oil and just a sprinkling of basil. I um, I wouldn't say my food's groundbreaking by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be the best chef, but now I'm probably wanting to be the best chef that I can be um, and just cook simple, big, delicious flavours. Um, and that's right from the pizza to the zeppoli to, you know, we might at the moment we've got some prosciutto on with buffalo curd and pickled broad beans. So, we're really looking to just do simple ingredients on the plate that are really good and not have to do much. I think that probably exemplifies my style as well. Earlier on, you mentioned about some Asian influences on dishes as well. When did you start to go down that track and, and how do you get that into the menu? Um, I don't know when I started to go down that track, but it, it, I think I think a lot of Asian flavors you know promote a lot of you know that umami kind of flavor um and i don't by no means does italian food miss that because you know you've got um your cured meats you've got parmigiano reggiano all the beautiful stuff but i think the asian ingredients can really help heighten that um but i think it's also about the textures and things like that too but getting those asian flavors in there just i think it helps you know, grow those things. Um, you know, same as an anchovy. <laughs> Anchovies are great, especially the olazagasti and things like that. They've got almost like that meaty, veggie-mighty flavour that comes through. So I probably wouldn't pair that with an Asian ingredient. But, you know, I think all these cultures and foods sort of intertwine somewhere along the way. And I think you have a, you have a lot of opportunity to be, to be able to marry them um, and make them all highlight together. South Australia is renowned for extraordinary produce and seafood. And um, is there any sort of producers um, that you connect with from South Australia that you can tell us about? Yeah, absolutely. Like um, one, I've, I've done a lot of work and functions over the years with, um, like, just before COVID hit, with um, Jason Roberts, and that sort of came to connection with um, our olive oil supplier we have here in South Australia. Um, they're based up at my my Palonga out near Murray Bridge. So we've gone out to the Olive Grove and hosted Chef Days together. Um, but their product is probably one of the products I love the most because they really care about what they're doing, as a lot of farmers and that do. Um, but they make this olive oil that is just absolutely sensational. And, you know, they make agramatos, chili, garlic, um, all these different things. And then we go up there and cook over a big fire pit. Um, for all these other chefs and that throughout the community. Um, they fly in from Sydney and stuff as well. Um, but having these producers, and then we go up there, they talk to a local farmer um, 
that bring out, you know, produce for the day for us. Then we get Nomad Farms supplying chickens for us and things like that. So I'm always on the hunt trying to talk to new farmers, suppliers. Um, I also, when it comes to meats, I, I love using um, good quality beef, but I try to always use the secondary cuts. Um, just one, it's cheaper for our customers and, you know, they get to enjoy something different. So one of the dishes we have on at the moment, we use the tri-tip cut and um, the Italians have a dish called bistecca pizzaiola, so pizza maker steak. But what we do is rather than serving like a, you know, a nice medium rare steak, we actually take the tri-tip, we braise it with San Marzano tomatoes, capers, basil, chili, anchovies and garlic. Um, and then we cool that down and then we cut that into steak portions and grill it after that so it just softens up. And then we put that beautiful rich sauce over the top with some pickles, some grana padano and basil. So I love to talk to the farmers about what is a secondary cut that you think we should use so that we use the whole cow too. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to just use the fillet, the sirloin, um, the rump and all that. We, I want to explore other things um, just so we're not also being wasteful as a community. We're sort of moving into warmer climates at the moment. Is there any sort of dishes or ingredients that you're looking forward to in summer? Oh, yeah. I mean, at the moment, um, spring's just kicked off and the broad beans are coming in. And every time broad beans come in, I am absolutely over the moon. Um, the asparagus too, that, you know, that's not too far away as well. Um, but all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, in summer, I just good tomatoes, <laughs> um, you know, just a nice growing tomato season with olive oil and salt or um, just, you know, in a nice pasta, just all those sorts of things. Um, strawberries, you know, we'll play around with them on danishes in the morning. Um, just anything that's fresh and vibrant at the moment coming through, all the fresh herbs, you know. Um, I, I'm a big fan of salads. Um, and the other night we actually did a dinner based on Tuscany so we made because the tomatoes aren't so ripe at the moment we um, got some pickled broad beans and grilled zucchinis and made a panzanella with that with heaps of vinegar rather than doing tomatoes um, you know we're looking at Tuscany but they have their panzanella salad so how can we do it? how can we do it so it fits with the seasons it's a bit more um, responsible in terms of you know having a better meal but also a a better price point and things like that as well. So we try to twist things around like that so that they can fit in with the cooler months and the warmer months when they normally wouldn't. Mm. You, you mentioned uh, 50 years, it's been part of the community and you have nonnas come in with their grandkids. And is there, is there an obligation to keep things traditional while you're still looking to sort of push things forward? Absolutely. Um, we will never move away from the core values of the business. Um, which is basically to, you know, make sure everyone's eating and drinking better. Um, but like I said earlier, the cavatelli will never leave the menu. And, you know, when you sit down and have this bowl of cavatelli, it is, it's life-changing, you know. It's one of those, it's one of those moments. That the sauce is great, um, but for me, it's just the texture of the pasta. It's al dente, it's Moorish, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a hot or cold day, like everyone just enjoys this pasta. Um but then we also have meatballs as well, which we will never get rid of. Um, and they're just an institution now. Like there's just things we will never be able to take away. And the the market in North Adelaide may very well be different and require something different. Um, they may not like the Cavatelli as much, but at the same time, we've had a lot of customers coming in saying, we can't wait for you to be in North Adelaide so that we can have the Cavatelli at home. <laughs> 
you um, had a beautiful quote a bit earlier on about, you know, wanting to be the best chef, but then sort of realizing being the best chef that you can be. Um, tell us a little bit more about that and sort of what, what your plans are as you sort of evolved your own career. Yeah, I think, you know, when you're young, you have a fair bit of ego. Um, and I think I still do have a fair bit of an ego, but that ego has shifted. And, you know, I always looked at when I was younger, I want to go work at the French Laundry. I want to go work, um, you know, Noma and things like that. And they're all really good um, and fantastic. But I thought, oh, man, I'm just going to have to work a lot of hours and all that kind of stuff. But I want to have the great work-life balance. Um, that was something that always stuck to me. Um, but now as I get older, I think I want my food to just be simple, tasty, but I want everyone to have it. Um, you know, going to some of those restaurants does come with a higher price point. And at the same time, don't get me wrong, I love going to those places and, you know, absolutely enjoy them. And I love the whole experience of being looked after from, you know, start to finish. It, it It's just one of life's simple pleasures. Um, but I think now it's more about cooking for family and kids and all that kind of stuff. That's what I really enjoy. Well, you're doing amazing things there and it's an absolute honour to catch up with you today on Deep in the Weeds. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>